Section 26 of the Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 2, Chapter 9, The 45, Part 3. Those who like to conjecture what might have been are of opinion that had the Chevalier's wish been granted and the march continued to Derby, he would have recovered for his father the throne of his ancestors, but they are also of opinion that neither his father nor he could have maintained it. This is, however, nothing more than conjecture. Charles Edward never marched to London, because his officers, more cautious than himself, and understanding better the dangers of the position, insisted upon retreat from Derby. Long and strenuously did he contend against their advice. Rather than go back, I would wish to be twenty feet underground." but neither the prince's warmth in the council of war nor his most earnest private entreaties could persuade the leading officers, and at length he was compelled to give a sullen consent to the retreat. Little wonder that the young man felt the blow. The commencement of the retreat on December 6th was the turning point of his fortunes. In the southward march the prince is described as surrendering his private carriage to a follower in feeble health, and himself gaily marching on foot at the head of the clans, talking and laughing with the men, venturing on a few words of Gaelic. On the retreat he was always in the rear, riding dejectedly, all his gay spirits gone, often delaying the column which would wait for him to come up. The feeling of the men was in harmony with that of the prince. They were distressed and indignant at the idea of retreat, for they had counted upon certain victory. Subsequent history shows us that the prince and the men were right, the chief officers wrong. Whatever chance of ultimate success the insurgents of the forty-five ever had, that chance was lost. The whole expedition has been compared to the act of a gambler staking all on one throw, but the gambler who hesitates is lost. The news of the retreat was an intense relief to England, or rather to the English government. In London there had been a panic. The day on which the news of the Highland Army's arrival at Derby was known in the city was long remembered as Black Friday. A run was made on the Bank of England, but the directors, by the expedient of paying their own clerks and paying them in sixpences, procured delay for themselves and avoided any fatal results. Indifference was, however, a commoner feeling than fear. The people generally seemed to regard the contest for the crown as one in which they had no part. Mr. Gray, a travelled man of letters soon to be known as a poet, wrote two months later to a friend from Cambridge, where doubtless there were Jacobites, though there would be more at Oxford. The common people, in town at least, know how to be afraid, but we are such uncommon people here as to have no more sense of danger than if the battle, Falkirk, had been fought where and when the Battle of Cannae was. I heard three sensible middle-aged men, when the Scotch were said to be in Stamford, and actually were at Derby, talking of hiring a chaise to go to Caxton, a place on the high road, to see the pretender and highlanders as they passed. In times of widespread and earnest loyalty, and under a popular sovereign, it is a little difficult for us to conceive the utter indifference of many people in England on the subject of the rebellion. 
Their feeling was doubtless well expressed in the witty epigram, God bless, no harm in blessing, the pretender, which the pretender is and which the king, God bless us all, that's quite another thing. The Duke of Cumberland followed with his dragoons after the retreating Highlanders. At the village of Clifton near Penrith, a skirmish took place in which the English were repulsed with considerable loss. This skirmish has the honor of being the last battle fought on the soil of England. On December 20th, the prince, leaving a small garrison in Carlisle, withdrew the main body of his troops, who re-entered their own country just six weeks after they had left it. The distance marched from the Scotch border to Derby is about 185 miles. If the French ministers had seized the opportunity to make an invasion of England in force, whilst Charles Edward was still advancing, the situation of the English government would have been even more critical. But when the turn came and the retreat took place, the French armament was still in preparation at Dunkirk. Indeed, the news of the retreat caused the stage of preparation never to be passed, though Cumberland and his troops were summoned to the south coast of England to face the French force. The command against the rebels was taken from the aged Wade and entrusted to General Hawley, a rough and brutal soldier, violent of temper, cruel, hated by his own men, and trained in the worst traditions of the Continental War. Hawley was full of sneers against Cope and of boasts that with two regiments of dragoons he could ride over the Highland army. The first care of the general was to erect gibbets in Edinburgh for rebels who should fall into his hands. Whilst the prince had gained nothing by the advance into England, his cause had, through his absence, lost ground in Scotland. The complete ascendancy of his friends which prevailed after Preston Pans now disappeared. The prince encamped his army on the field of Bannockburn. He said it would be a good omen to the Scotch cause to fight the battle there. Two nights and days he waited, but Hawley came not. Then, determined to bring on the fight, the Scotch marched forwards. General Hawley was being most hospitably entertained by a lady of the neighborhood whose husband was with the rebel army and who had on that account done her utmost by hospitality to detain the English general. Probably through contempt for his foe, whom he was fond of describing as a highland rabble, Hawley had sent out no patrols and had no information as to their movements. On the right of the English the rebels had made with all their cavalry a feint of an attack, and those in the camp thought the attack would come from this side, when it was found that the main body of the Highlanders were advancing on the other side. Hawley galloped out breathless and without his hat, and at once ordered the dragoons to advance with him. Between him and the rebels lay Falkirk Moor, a lofty rugged heath. It was a race between the Highlanders and Hawley's dragoons, but a race which the latter won, and taking advantage of their better position, charged. It was unfortunate for Hawley that two out of three dragoon regiments which he had were the regiments that had fled in the canter of Colbrig and at Prestonpans. It was bad management to keep these men in the field against the Scotch. The Highlanders, with the utmost coolness, reserved their fire until the cavalry were within ten yards of them and then gave a tremendous volley. This had the effect of breaking the line. 
Those horsemen who persevered were pulled from their horses, whilst the horses were stabbed by the highland dirks. Meanwhile a violent storm of wind and heavy rain came on, driving full in the faces of Hawley's infantry. All the centre and left were defeated, but on the right, owing to the fact that the troops were fresh, better commanded and better placed, the English had the best of it. They were behind a ravine in such fashion that the Scotch could not charge across it. On this wing, many Highlanders fled, so that to some extent the battle of Sheriff Muir was being repeated in the different issue on the two wings. But the second line of the Scotch coming up checked the advance of the English right. That night the English retreated from Falkirk, which the prince occupied, but once more mortification was in store for the prince. Once more there came a blow from his best friends. Twice victorious, never as yet defeated, and only successfully resisted by very strong fortresses, a second time was this unfortunate king compelled to retreat. The English troops were unable to conquer the brave little Highland army, but that army was so small that it could not hold a district of any extent, and besides the fact that it was so small, it had the fatal tendency to dwindle. The victorious Highlanders went off to carry home their booty. After his experience at Derby, the prince would hold no more councils, but the officers met and sent a memorial to the prince pointing out that the only way to extricate the army from its imminent danger was to march into the highlands, master the forts, and in the spring collecting a larger army issue forth again. The prince was in despair, but was forced once more to yield. But on this occasion, as at the retreat from Derby, the prince was right, his advisers wrong. There is nothing left but to describe the final scenes of this romantic episode in history. The son of the pretender was to be faced by the son of the king. The news of Falkirk arrived in London on the day of a royal drawing-room, at which it was said every face was overwhelmed with consternation, except that of the king, too brave to show fear, and that of Sir John Cope, who felt that his own defeat was now eclipsed. It was at once determined to send the Duke of Cumberland into Scotland. He was a few years younger than Charles Edward, full of energy, esteemed by the army for the bravery he had showed at Fontenoy. He might fairly be expected to bring with him zeal for his father's house, and to let the Scotch see that this rebellion was no longer despised as unimportant. The Duke came to Scotland in the nick of time for success. On January 30th he slept at Holyrood Palace, and it was noticed that the day was of ill omen for the House of Stuart. Next day he set out against the enemy, but on February 1st the Prince, compelled by the memorial of his officers, broke up his camp before Stirling and commenced, more than ever dejected and miserable, his northward retreat. Some advisers told Cumberland that a battle would not be necessary, for the Highland army, following its usual habits, would of itself disperse. But as others assured him that a nucleus would still remain together, the Duke determined to follow, but slowly, and with an overpowering force. A large body of Hessian troops came up to Edinburgh, the inhabitants of which town are said to have found them better behaved than the English soldiers, and even to have imitated them in their taste in snuff. 
By leaving these troops in garrison, Cumberland was able to take more English regiments with him. The English navy, too, was more upon the alert, and succeeded in cutting off some French cavalry, whom arrangements were just made to disembark from the ships which had brought them from France. The Duke now advanced slowly toward the north, fixing his headquarters first at Perth and afterwards at Aberdeen. Meantime, the Highland army was in terrible plight. The prince had no money and was obliged to pay his soldiers in meal, whilst even of meal the supply was scant. When his troops were camped on Culloden Moor, one of the officers said that the heath served both for bedding and fuel, the cold being very severe. Moreover, the schism between Charles and his chief officers, which had been earlier shown at the two retreats, as well as the jealousies of the clans, were on the increase. Welcome was the news that Cumberland was nigh and battle impending. Culloden, or as it is more properly called, Dramasimur, is a high tableland lying about five miles to the east of Inverness. On the part of Charles, it was most unwisely selected as a battlefield, for being level, it offered good scope for artillery and for cavalry, and in these two arms the English were strong, the prince very weak. From previous experience, the prince had naturally great confidence in the effects of a charge of his highlanders. Weary of delay, he probably felt himself as sure of victory as at Prestonpans, and thought such a victory was needed for his cause. But the circumstances were different. Troops in better discipline and a general with fresher knowledge was opposed to him, whilst his own army had suffered the discouragement of retreat. As Cumberland advanced from Aberdeen, Charles to meet him issued forth from Inverness, a place of great importance to him, often called the capital of the Highlands. Knowing that in attack rather than defence lay the Highlanders' strength, Charles and his officers agreed upon a scheme for a night attack upon the Duke's camp. But the men were exhausted by fatigue, starvation, and cold, and not in case like those who had charged at Prestonpans or gaily marched to Derby. Some dispersed in search of food, some dropped out of the ranks, the night being very dark. The march was delayed and day dawned before the attack could be made. The dispirited troops fell back in the early morning of April 16th upon Culloden Moor. The prince rejected the advice to retreat into the hill country, trusting in the valour of his men which had never failed him, he would not avoid a battle. He had not, however, made sufficient allowance for the physical exhaustion of his men. One sea biscuit to each man was the only provision for his army on the day before the battle. The duke, it is true, said his own men would fight more actively with empty bellies, but the difference was between men generally starved and men kept waiting for their breakfast. It may be added that the battle was fought between men who had been up all night and men who had had their usual sleep. The Chevalier's army was diminished by the desertion of stragglers in search of food or rest, and certainly in the battle that followed Cumberland's army was nearly double that of his opponent. A spirited address from Cumberland animated his army for the fight. He begged all who did not want to face the Highlanders to withdraw, and he was answered by his men with shouts of Flanders. The Duke took up his position on a large boulder a quarter of a mile to the rear of his army. The battle began with the artillery. 
the english guns were well served and did such execution upon the highlanders that unable to stand the fire any longer with a fierce and passionate rage the clansmen on the right charged and broke the first english line but the duke expecting this had specially strengthened the second line which received them with a terrible fire and forced them back the bravest were destroyed the broken remnant fled towards Inverness, hotly pursued by English dragoons. On the left of the prince's line was stationed the clan MacDonald, but they claimed as a prerogative of their clan the honour of fighting on the right, and now stood sullen. They saw their chief shot before their eyes, heard his dying exclamation, My God, have the children of my tribe forsaken me? But they stood sullen, still, and inactive, whilst the rest of the army was being defeated, and then they retreated in good order, one more proof of the inherent weakness of a highland army. The story ran that ere the battle was quite over, Lord Elko rode up to the young prince and asked him who once had promised to conquer or to die, to place himself at the head of his troops and lead a final charge. When the prince hesitated, it is added that Lord Elko cursed him to his face and swore that he would never look upon him again. Doubts have been cast upon this story, and an account that rests upon better evidence is that the prince was forced from the battlefield by an attendant who seized his bridal rein. Very complete was the victory at Culloden, and with it the last chance of Jacobite success came to an end. The embers of the rebellion were stamped out with great severity or rather cruelty, the worst inciters to which were the chief officers of the royal army, especially the Duke of Cumberland and General Hawley, who thought that he was avenging Falkirk. For his conduct in the days after Culloden, the nickname Butcher was given to the Duke. With this cruelty, many writers have contrasted the clemency of Prince Charles toward his prisoners after the battles that he won. The contrast is very marked, but the difference in their positions must be remembered. Prince Charles was raising a rebellion and naturally anxious to win support by showing that a change in the dynasty would be a gain to the country. Even the most violent Jacobite could hardly treat adhesion to the established government as a crime. Cumberland was putting down a rebellion against his father's house, a rebellion which was not only legally a crime, but might fairly be considered even by those who did not love the House of Brunswick as a wanton disturbance by war, and to some extent by rapine, of a nation enjoying internal peace under a settled government. The clemency of a rebel may be honourable to him, and though partly due to policy, it was honourable to Charles. But clemency in an established government may be attributed to weakness, and may almost take the form of invitation to further rebellion. Revolutions cannot be made with rosewater, much less put down with it, and those who take the sword shall perish by the sword. It is the simple duty of an established government to protect itself. This defense, however, applies rather to the execution of rebels after trial on the scaffold than to the cruelty of Cumberland and Hawley in the neighborhood of Culloden and immediately after the battle. When a noble and upright judge who had done more than any other to support the government in the time of trouble assured Cumberland that his acts were contrary to law. This was his brutal answer. The laws, my lord, I'll make a brigade give laws. 
and he afterwards spoke of his adviser as that old woman who talked to me about humanity. The sufferings of the inhabitants at the hands of the dragoons are described as terrible. The English soldiers under orders shot the men, burnt their houses, and drove women and children forth to die. Amongst the victors at Culloden were soldiers who had thrice run away, and there is a proverb that cowards are always cruel. Side by side with real cruelty it sounds a mere childish insult, when we read that the pretender standards were carried into Edinburgh by chimney-sweeps and burnt by the common hangmen. From fear lest the Scots should be too full of sympathy with their countrymen, the prisoners were brought almost in droves to England to be tried. At Carlisle in York, a great many trials were held, and many prisoners found guilty. Few, however, were executed with all the savage penalties of the cruel law of treason. Three peers and seventy-three commoners is the number of those who suffered death, whilst a great many more were transported to the colonies in America. Fourteen months after the Battle of Culloden, an act of indemnity was passed granting pardon to all the survivors who, according to the quaint expression common for years after, had been out in the forty-five, but excepting by name eighty of the most important who had escaped. This was followed by other acts of Parliament intended to break the Highland disaffection. By one, the Highlanders were to be disarmed, severe penalties being attached to the possession or concealment of any weapon. Moreover, the Highlanders were forbidden their peculiar dress, under pain of six months' imprisonment for the first offence, seven years' transportation for the second. Of all the measures, this last provision, in that it wounded feeling, was the most unpopular. By other acts, the hereditary jurisdictions and military service were brought to an end. These were relics of feudalism, and greatly assisted clanship. The chief of a clan had judicial power over all its members, and the jurisdiction of all chiefs throughout Scotland was bought for a sum of money, £152,000, which Parliament granted. The tenure of land for military service, which was of the very essence of feudalism, having in England fallen into disuse, had been formally abolished in the year of the Restoration, 1660. In the Highlands of Scotland, it had continued with greater vitality, and had given the chiefs their power and the pretender his army. The object of these statutes was to break the power of the clans. Other statutes of an intolerant character were passed with the view of crushing the Episcopal Church of Scotland, a religious body always notoriously on the Jacobite side, because in the time of William III it had ceased to be the established church in Scotland and naturally connected the cause of the Stuarts with their own. Yet James and Charles Edward were both Roman Catholics and sincerely attached to their own form of religion. These measures were all intended to coerce the Highlanders and to stop the spirit of disaffection, but of course they only created discontent with the English government. A very wise idea on the part of the great Lord Chatham was carried out within a dozen years of the rebellion, the enrollment of the Highland regiments. Amongst the Highlanders, fighting was their profession— there was not on their mountain homes sufficient peaceful occupation to keep all employed, and the frequent risings of the Highlanders have been explained on the same principle on which the doctors formerly bled their patients. 
they were hot-blooded, and fighting was needed. In order to gratify their taste, many Highlanders had gone abroad, joined foreign armies, and won great renown. Noble families on the continent traced their origin to Scotchmen who had been soldiers of fortune in French or Prussian armies. On some battlefields they crossed swords with the English. Excellent was the suggestion that this enthusiasm should be used against the enemies of England. Henceforward, there were no braver and no better soldiers in the army of the United Kingdom than the Highland regiments, and many a victory in every part of the world makes it impossible to overestimate the debt that England owes them. From this time forward, the long-fostered discontent against the Union began to disappear, and English and Scotch began to feel themselves one people. After the defeat of his army at Culloden and utter downfall of his cause, the young Chevalier was for more than five months in imminent danger of his life, wandering from place to place, an outcast and a fugitive. A very large reward of thirty thousand pounds, probably in purchasing power equivalent to a hundred thousand pounds in our day, was offered for his capture. During his wanderings, hundreds must have been in a position to earn this reward. None did. No fact speaks more for the honor and fidelity of the Highlanders and for the love that they bore the prince. Oftentimes the prince was miserably lodged in some hut or cave with outlaws like himself or with poor herdsmen. Oftentimes he was almost starved. The most famous incident in connection with this time is the way in which Flora MacDonald enabled him to escape when the pursuit was hottest, no less than two thousand men being engaged in searching the single island of South Uist. The prince was disguised as a female servant in attendance upon Miss Flora MacDonald, who in her single self may be said to have atoned for the misconduct of her clan at Culloden. Apparently, the prince wore his disguise but awkwardly, and in crossing streams, now holding his petticoats too high, now letting them float on the water, so that one who was with him remarked, Your enemies call you a pretender, but if you be I can tell you that you are the worst at your trade I ever saw. One young officer in the prince's army, resembling the prince somewhat in height and appearance, tried to divert pursuit from him by exclaiming when he was wounded, Villains, you have slain your prince. For some little time it was believed that the prince was really slain. Then the pursuit recommenced. At length, however, the young chevalier was able to embark on board a French frigate with about a hundred of his followers and to set foot once again on the shore of France. It may be as well here to follow to its close the melancholy story of the young prince and of his house. England being at war with France, the French welcomed the Scotch fugitives, made them money grants, and in other ways helped them. But two years later France was preparing to close the war with the peace signed a little later at Aix-la-Chapelle. The French government then found Prince Charles an awkward guest and begged him to retire from France, offering him an honorable asylum in Switzerland with a pension and the nominal title of Prince of Wales. Having refused this honorable offer, he was seized one evening as he was going to the opera in Paris, hurried at first to prison, and then out of France into the small territory held by the Pope at Avignon. From town to town the unhappy prince wandered, now more than ever an outcast. He gave great offense to the dwindling remnants of his supporters by admitting to his intimacy 
the sister of the housekeeper to the Prince of Wales, who was suspected of betraying Jacobite secrets. Charles Edward refused to listen to the suggestion of his own supporters that this intimacy should be brought to a close. Thereupon the Jacobite party was practically broken up, though it may have much longer had an existence in sentiment both in England and in Scotland. More than once the prince is said to have himself visited London, the most famous tradition, though it is little more than a tradition, being that he was present in Westminster Abbey at the coronation of King George III. On the death of his father, the old pretender in 1766, at the advanced age of 78, as the different courts of Europe refused to acknowledge in any way the son as King of Great Britain, the latter assumed the title of Count of Albany. He married a German princess much younger than himself, but they lived very unhappily together, for in the later years of his life there is no doubt that this gallant prince, in whom so many hopes had once been centred, yielded to degrading habits of intoxication. It is said that the taste for whiskey began during his exposure to cold on his flight in Scotland. He died at Rome January 31, 1788, aged 67, on the day after the anniversary of the execution of his great-grandfather, one century later than the revolution which cost his grandfather his throne, and only one year before the greater revolution which shook so many thrones. On the death of Charles Edward, the heir was his younger brother Henry, who had been admitted into holy orders in the Roman Catholic Church, and who was made a cardinal by the Pope. The cardinal never asserted his claim to the throne, but once issued a medal, representing him in cardinal robes, with the crown and scepter in the background, and bearing the motto, Voluntate Dei non desiderio populi. In his latter days, King George III granted the cardinal a pension of £4,000 a year, and when this last of the Stuarts died at Rome in 1807, he bequeathed to the King of England all the crown jewels which his grandfather, King James II, had taken with him on his hasty retreat from England. In the Cathedral Church of St. Peter's at Rome stands a monument by the eminent sculptor Canova. It was erected at the expense of the Prince Regent. On it is this simple inscription, Jacopo Tertius, Jacopo Secundi Magni Britannii Regis Filio, Carolo Eduardo et Enrico Decano Patrum, Cardinalium, Jacobi Tertii Filiis Regiae Stirpis, Stuardiae Postremus, Anno Mille Octo Undiviginti, Beati Mortui Qui in Domino Moriuntur. End of section 26.